You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. great to be live with, with all of you and see your wonderful faces, or half of them. <clears throat> Looking forward in a couple of weeks when I can see your whole faces when we're outside together. So hopefully you'll sign up for that. You can uh, pick up your Bibles and you can turn to a few places. First you can turn to Second uh, Kings chapter 4 and you can mark that, Second Kings chapter 4. And we'll come back to that. And then you can turn to Psalm 37. Those are the two main places we'll be today. And that's where we'll start. And uh, just while you're turning there, we're looking for a person who can do a a weekly volunteer task of burning uh, the CDs of the sermon and so we can distribute them to those who don't have internet as there's still quite a few people that don't have uh, internet and aren't able to watch the sermon. So uh, Luke has been doing it, um, but he is not going to be allowed to leave camp as, long, as well as Alyssa for the next couple of months. Um, so we, are, we need somebody else to do it, and we'll provide the equipment, we'll provide the training, and it should only take an hour um, or two a week. So if you could let one of us know if you'd be interested in that, that would be a great help. Well, let's pray. God, I'm thankful today that you can speak to our lives from 2,900 years ago. Uh, you're going to show us how a couple, through their simple acts of obedience and their simple love for you and for other people, were able to really do good and really change their community and and take notice of you. And you took notice of them. So God, I pray that for each uh, man and woman here today, that they would too see that they in 2021 can do good, can live well, can build the kingdom. They don't have to be famous. Help us to see that and help us to have the courage to do what we can do and help me, a simple man who tends to mess things up, the ability to articulate this well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today I want to talk to you about becoming an influencer or a person worth looking up to. An influencer or a person worth looking up to. What kind of people do our, does our culture tend to lift up and say, uh, look up to this person or be influenced by this person? Give me a few examples of the kind of things that culture looks to lift up. Yell it out. Don't be shy. I know you're not used to speaking in hum- to humans. Good-looking people, yeah. Look at how beautiful or handsome this person is. Do what they do. What else? Celebrities, yeah. Because they're famous, you should listen to them. People with integrity, that would be great. Yeah, that's the kind of person we should look up to. Yeah, that would be great. What else does culture uh, hold up? Sports stars, yeah, good looking. Who else? Rich, yeah, there you go. Rich, powerful, beautiful. That's who culture says, look up to these these people. And and what are they trying to do when you see them on ads or, or reading? They're trying to influence you 
to become like them, right? Isn't that true? We often become like the people that we look up to, right? If, if, if you like what a celebrity wears, you will buy what they wear. If you see them drinking something, you'll be like, I need to get that. Sometimes we start to speak like the people that we look up to. Sometimes we want to read what they've read or go to the schools that they've gone to. And we, we are often influenced by those and become like those uh, who we look up to. But that's not what the Bible says that we should do. Just look up to whatever culture says is great. Look at Psalm 37. And it's always good, like I say, to have a Bible in front of your hands so you can learn how to read it yourself, so you can seek out life's answers and God's direction in it. Psalm 37, verses 1 and 2. There's a warning, and later we'll come back to the promise. It says, do not fret because of those who do evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like the green plants, they will soon die away. Isn't this the truth? We all get old. We all die. But the influence that lasts, even in the cultural world, passes from generation to generation. Right? Look at the last 70 years. Muhammad Ali was one of the sports stars that everyone looked up to, right, in the 50s and 60s. Cassius Clay, the fastest punch thro- or thrower of punches who could defeat an opponent with his mind, right? Very cocky, very arrogant. I'm the best there ever was. I'm the best there ever will be, right? And then in 1962, at age 42, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, right? And all of that speed and all of that power started to wither away until it eventually took his life. Look at John F. Kennedy, one of the best speakers of the second half of the 20th century, right? He thought he had the world ahead of him. He was a very promiscuous man. When we read history books, it says that he was... he. He slept around a lot. He was, he was very ambitious. He knew what he wanted. A, a great speaker, but not exactly the kind of man you would want to marry and bring home. And then that tragic day when his life was snuffed out, right? And many of the younger generation don't even know his name today. What about Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? He's the guy that I grew up with in the 80s and 90s. He was like the celebrity, the action star, four-time Mr. Olympian or Mr. Universe, all the biggest movies, went on to become the governor of California for eight years. And now he's in his late 70s and all of that muscle is withering away and the influence is no longer there. He's no longer the number one for younger people. They don't even know his name. That's the reality of life. What culture says just withers away. And, and often we can say, okay, but I look up to Bible characters. I look up to people that lived in time, like David, or like Paul. Right? Paul, he was so smart. Or like Esther, she was so beautiful, and she used her beauty to change and save a nation. Or like David, he, used his, he was so brave, he went out and met that giant. But it seems like it's almost too much for us, right? They, we look at them and we're like, they're up here, it seems like, and we're right here. And therefore we can say, well, I'll never defeat a giant or I'll never be able to influence a kingdom or I'll never be smart enough to be able to articulate like Paul did. And so we kind of just say, I don't know what to do. But something we've got to keep in mind 
If you study the history of Christianity and how it spread and how it changed nations and how it influenced the world and how it's still working, it doesn't spread and it didn't have its successes a lot of the time by big events. It was always small, daily living by Christians. Living out for, lo- in, for in obedience, for the love of Christ and for the love of people, just in little things. And it spread to this, to that person, and it changed that person's life. And men and women throughout the ages taking little steps, living faithful lives every day. Never famous on this earth. They'll be forgotten about, but famous in heaven. And today I want us to look at one of those couples. Uh, a couple that I hope to meet someday in heaven. I don't know their names, <clears throat> but I'll ask for them from what we know in scripture as the Shumanite couple. They lived 2,900 years ago in the fractured land, a very uh, horrible place to live. It was no longer, Israel was no longer the place it was 120 years prior when David was the king and it was at its glory. It was now a fractured land. It had been split into the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the lower kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah. And at the time, Judah, the southern kingdom, at this time, when we read in Second Kings, was ruled by a good king, a king who loved God and, and feared God. His name was Jehoshaphat. There's lots to read about him. Israel, on the other hand, was ruled by an evil king, a king who rejected God. In fact, for 79 years, it had endured under evil kings. 79 years of chaos and famine and war. And to put it into modern context, you could say it would be like living in modern-day Somalia, which is like, there's a government, but it's very corrupt. It can't uh, control its districts. There's warlords, there's terrorists, there's pirates, right? It would be like living there where the quality of life is very low for 79 years. So from like 1943 till now, you've lived in modern-day Somalia. That might be a picture of what it would be like to live there. So the son of Ahab, who you may have read about in the past, Ahab and Jezebel, notable, noted as the most evil king in Israel's history, this was his son now ruling. His first son had taken over, but he lasted like a year and a half, and then he was taken out. And so now his other son is now on the throne. And there's only a remnant of God-following people left. Uh, they, they could, you would maybe say they've been shut down their churches or their temples have been shut down and and the government like tolerates them sometimes and sometimes persecutes them and and they kind of exist in the shadows but there they are the faithful remnant of God and they have a representative his name is Elijah he's a prophet and the prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God to the people and speaks to God on behalf of the people those who are still faithful to Christ or to to God. And so we pick it up in our story, Second Kings chapter four, verse eight. One day Elijah went to Shunem. A prominent woman who lived there persuaded him to eat some food. So whenever he passed by, he stopped there to eat. Now Shunem 
is a relatively unimportant town. It's mentioned a couple of times in the Bible, but nothing significant. It's not known to be famous for something. And it's about, if, you're, if you look at a map like of Israel, like you might know it now, it would be along the northern route, uh, about three quarters of the way to Galilee. But remember, the nation is split into two fractured kingdoms, but people would still move in and out of the town. And so Elijah is moving around to visit the believers, uh, those who are still left. Now we know from 14 years prior, when we read in First Kings chapter, First uh, uh, Kings, we read Elijah said that there was about 7,000 faithful people still left in a few chapters. So this is 14 years later. We could say it's probably relatively the same. Not that many people who actually worship the Lord. Yet, the prophet is at work. And in this town, as he's passing through, comes this couple. The man was a farmer of some sort. Uh, he owned a field. Uh, and the woman, okay, which is more the one that Elijah interacts with, she's more the, she's more the I guess you could say the vocal one of the relationship, is prominent. Now, when I looked at it in the Hebrew, it said, it didn't say that she was prominent because of her wealth, uh, but more prominent due to her character. She had a notable character. And, and here, this believer seems to be thriving or doing well amongst a place that no longer believes. She was noted for her character, and that's the way we're supposed to be noted as Christians. Not because of our wealth, not because of our power, not because of our influence, but because of our character, our reputation. And while this woman, this believer, saw this uh, man, this prophet, this man of God, Elijah, coming through the mountain pass, which would be a lot easier to move about and to stay hidden and to blend in. And, and, and the prophet in the time of crisis was poor. In a time of prosperity, he was well-to-do, like in the time of David. Nathan, the prophet, would have been well-to-do. But in a time of poverty, he represented God and the people. And so he would have been relatively poor, not a luxurious life. The prophet was not like the people you might see on TV now, that rich in prosperity prophets, they call, who tell you to send in your money and then they'll have your prayers answered by God. Not like that kind of false prophet, but a real man of God, a man whose life is devoted to God and to his service. So this woman was... Not necessarily gifted, not necessarily rich, uh, doesn't mean she has an abundance of time. Uh, here it doesn't talk about servants or, or other children. Later on there's a mention of, of a servant, uh, of some servants a few years later. But most of her, a person's life, let's be honest, in a third world country was trying to survive as it is in much of the world today. And so her life would have been full of many tasks, getting water, preparing meals, keeping a house. There was so many things. Everything was done simply in those days. Everything was baked in a clay oven. Everything was made from scratch. So she didn't have an abundance of time. But you know what she did have? She had eyes. Eyes. And her eyes weren't closed. And those eyes were attached to a brain. And that brain was ruled by a heart, a heart ruled by God, a heart that was obedient to God, a heart that wasn't given over to the world, given over to the false gods, but a heart that was 
sold out to God. And so that heart informed the mind. And therefore, the mind made decisions based off the love for God that she had. And so when the eyes saw this prophet in need, the man had no food to eat. He would pass through, but he obviously wasn't invited into anywhere else. And so her mind made a decision. She was going to help. She saw a need and she was going to answer the need. And, and that's the first point I want to point out to you guys, that we regular men and women, regular Christians, not, not many of us will ever be famous, not many of us will ever be rich or, or, or uh, influential, but you know what we do and we can do? We can be obedient. We can see the needs in front of us and we can meet those needs. And becoming a Christian that is a person worth looking up to means you don't close your eyes to the things that God puts in front of you. You open your eyes to valid needs and provide for them. What do I mean by open your eyes? I, I mean that most of us, okay, most of us listening downstairs, upstairs, or, or listening to this online would probably fall into one of two categories. Not everyone, but most. Either you are a young or middle-aged, busy family person, right? You, or, or you're busy in your career, uh, or you're, you're busy uh, moving up in, in your education. You're busy. You've got lots of things to do. You've got kids to, to raise. You've got things to drive to. You've got businesses to run. You've got uh, businesses to move up the ranks through, so on and so forth. You've got so many things to do. You're so busy. Or you're a senior who moved here specifically to retire. You did all that stuff, all that child rearing, and now you just want to relax, right? You probably fall into one of those two categories. But Satan's tactics are still the same. It's this, to keep your eyes focused on the world and shut to the kingdom. That is Satan's tactics. With the young people, keep you as busy as you can. Keep your eyes on what I need. Oh, I need this much for my RSPs. I need to pay off my house and this. I might buy a cottage over here. Uh, I got to get the kids in this and I got to keep them busy in this and so on and so forth and so forth. And to the seniors, it's, it's keep you just nice and relaxed. Ah, the world has promised me freedom 55. And I'm just gonna lap it up and take it in. And so our eyes are often closed to the things of the kingdom, God's kingdom, the kingdom that he said he's building until the day he comes back to take us to be with him. And so we have to open our eyes, first of all, and say, God, show me what you're doing. Show me how I can live my life. I know I'm not here just to exist because there's nowhere in the Bible that says you shall just exist as a Christian. No, we live for something greater. So open it to valid needs or, or legitimate needs. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean like the church became famous, not because it just did what the world did, but the church became famous, like meaning that people wanted to know Christ. They wanted to know their message. They wanted to be around these people because it provided or met for needs that neither the world, that either the world couldn't or was unwilling to to provide for. So the spiritual is the is the what they cannot provide for and and the physical or the emotional um, or the the psychological is is what they were unwilling sometimes to provide for. And so in this case there's no food programs. 
right? Elijah can't stop by the Salvation Army and pick himself up a meal. The man's got no food, like many of the people in the world. They don't have food. In Canada, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who's actually going to starve to death. Mostly anyone could find some food if they really needed to. But as Christians, we're called to have our eyes open to the needs, to the valid needs, to the legitimate needs, and then we're called to meet them, right? That's, that's how Christians became famous. In, in Rome, they took care of the sick when they were thrown out. Uh, in the Roman Empire, they used to throw children, babies that were unwanted. They just used to throw them in the forest, and the Christians would take them, raise them as their own, and they became known as this incredibly loving group of people. They would sell part of their property and share it with the poor, something unheard of in those days, right? They were the first to say that women have rights. Women should be treated with value and with care and with love, right? They were this group that was extremely different than the world. But everything they did was with the intent that the spiritual would also be met. Right, And there's this thing called the social gospel where it says, Christians, we're just supposed to meet everyone's uh, needs, physical needs, and never address the spiritual. But what's the reality? Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost. You can feed a person three meals for 20 years. They're going to be fed, but they're still going to have that God-shaped hole inside of them, and they're still going to have an eternity without Christ. So we are called to use to meet the needs as a bridge to the spiritual. I remember becoming friends with a man named Nathan uh, when I was in Owen Sound and still in the military. And he was a new Christian like me. He was a rough around the edges. He was a giant guy. I don't know, way over six feet, built solid. He'd been in prison a few times and we became friends after we became Christians. We met at a Christian event. And I remember him telling, hearing his testimony um, and then we talked about it and there's so many details. But essentially what had happened is a guy had taken interest in him when he was out on parole. Like he'd seen this young man in his early 20s, no direction, uh, nobody had, his father hadn't been there, hadn't taught him anything, didn't know how to run his finances, didn't know how to hold down a job, so on and so forth. And this man, whoever he was, took an interest in him. And he started to teach him things and started to take him under, started to show compassion that he had never been shown before. And then eventually he brought him to faith and God inside of him changed him. And he who had been separated from this girlfriend that he had then went and married this girlfriend and raised the child together, and everything started to click in place. Because one man, who is a follower of Christ, took an interest in him, saw a need, went and provided for it the best that he could, and provided the best thing he could, the gospel. And that's what we're called to do. And in our society now, it's kind of like, ah, let's let the church leaders make things like church pastor or elders there's a need in the town you need to do something about it oh really or or it's like government you need to just make a program that'll deal with this but that isn't the way that jesus dealt with things is it no jesus dealt with it himself he didn't tell us to somebody else should do it and there's a popular saying in the military that that i learned to love it's excuses don't produce results 
Excuses don't produce at all. Because I had a lot of excuses as a, as a young man. Why I couldn't do this or why I couldn't do that. And to be Emory, excuses don't produce results. And it's true. And we have a lot of excuses, don't we? But an excuse really doesn't accomplish much, does it? For younger people, you've got excuses, right? You're so busy, so many things to do. That's why I can't do this. Or seniors are like, ah, I, I, I'm just so tired and I've just got so many other things to do and I did that before and I just, that's my excuses, I just can't do it, right? And so nothing or very little gets done. And here's my point. If we don't do it, nobody will. Jesus works through the church. That's what he says. You are my hands and feet. He fills us with his spirit, gives us the abilities, even though we don't think we have them, gives us the resources to accomplish it in his name. So if Christians say, I'm not doing it, then no one's going to do it. And that might be a reason why Christianity in the West is in its death spiral, because the church has decided it can't do it. Look at verse 9. This woman, simple woman, simple couple. Verse 9, said to her husband, I know that the one who often passes through here is a holy man of God. So let's make a small walled in upper room and put a bed in it and a table and a chair and a lamp there for him. Whenever he comes, he can stay there. Second point, go to some trouble for God. Like, put some effort into what you do for God. And, and let's think about what this couple did, right? It's, it's the Middle East. <laughs> There's not an abundance of wood, okay, in Israel. Uh, there is not an abundance of steel. She's living in a town up in the mountainous region. She's, she's low, middle class, lower to middle class. How did they build buildings then? Well, relatively the same way they do in the Middle East now, with mud, with hardened mud. And so they would have had a mud building or a mud compound where they would have laid wood across the top and then covered it in hardened mud which is actually quite strong. That's why it's been used for thousands of years. So what they did is they went to all the work of building another room on top of their house. Like this is no small task. It's not some muffins they made and say, have a nice day. I'm off to, do, off to the races, right? It's like, we're going to do something. It's a husband and wife team because the husband's not objecting to it. And, and, and so here's a team and they say, you know what? We're not just going to do the basic. We're not just going to do the minimum. We're going to give our best for God. So... Let me ask you a question. That's a question I had to ask myself when, I'm, when I was reading this is, what do you go to trouble for in your life? Like, what do you put effort to in your life? Is it your career? It's a good thing to put effort into. Got to go to some trouble to have a career. Is it your marriage? It's another good place to put some effort into. Your kids? Your grandkids? These are good things. Not bad things, good things. Your beauty, your health, uh, your entertainment, is it your house or your cottage, is it your garden, slowly, meticulously picking all the weeds out, is it your hobbies, your athletics, is it your afternoon nap, oh, I got to have an afternoon nap, I got I to gotta leave wherever I'm going and have my nap and I'm going to take the time, I need to do that, 
Is it your cooking? I'm going to make really intricate meals and put a lot of effort into this. Is it your cleaning? I, I got to have the, the floors scrubbed. I got to wash the floors twice a week. What is it? What is the thing that you put effort into or the things? Let's all use golf as an example. I don't play golf, but I've watched some people play golf. Um, <clears throat> it's actually something you have to put a lot of effort into do. Think about it. You got to make the reservation. And you got to get your golf clubs, load them in the car. You got to buy those golf clubs, load them in the car, drive to the golf club, meet up with your friends, go in and let them know you're here. Either carry your clubs or get in the cart, drive there, hit the ball, either leg, lug your clubs around or get in the cart, drive some more, get out, hit the ball, go into the trees, get it out, so on and so forth, right? And then all of that, what does that take, three, four, five hours? I don't know. I don't play golf, but it's got to take a while, right? That's a lot of effort, like that's all, you go to a lot of trouble to hit a ball around, right? It's true, right? So ladies, let me ask you, how much trouble do you go in to doing up your face and putting your hair in, in order and all of that stuff that I don't have to do? As you can see, this is it, <clears throat> right? I'm sure it's probably like anywhere from 20 minutes to half an hour to maybe an hour if you add the whole time, like in a day. Like from putting the makeup on to taking the makeup off to putting the creams and the salts and the cucumbers and everything else you do that you, you do, right? There's probably a lot of effort. It's not something you just do, right? You put effort into what's important to you. You go to trouble for what's important to you. And often, for to be honest, we go to a lot of trouble for a lot of things, but we don't go to much trouble for the things that are important to God. COVID was really important to the world, right? The world went to a huge effort to prevent COVID. They wanted to save lives, understandable. And so how much trouble did they go to in? Well, let me put it in context. And I'm not knocking that, I'm putting it into context. It is the biggest effort in the entire world that anyone has ever put any organization to the biggest thing okay so let me put this in context world war ii cost the u.s and they have the most up-to-date numbers the u.s 4.1 trillion dollars in today's dollars for five years of fighting world war ii so to fight the biggest war in history for five years 4.1 trillion dollars in today's dollars Okay, that's tanks and battleships and aircraft carriers and planes and missile bombs and missiles and bombs and outfitting people and sending them over and the recruiting offices and so on and so forth. Over about a year and two months, the U.S. spent $6 trillion on COVID-related initiatives. $6 trillion over one year, $1.9 trillion more than to fight the biggest war in history over five years. Why? Because it was important to them. Now let me put this into context. Would everyone say that keeping people from starving to death is important? Yeah? Yeah, good. And people are like, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. You know how many people die every year from starving to death? 9.1 million on average is what they say. 9.1 million people die every year from starving to death. Now, there's a company, there's an organization, a research organization called the International Food Policy Research Institute. 
And they came out with a report in 2018 that said, if we were to invest $260 billion a year over 10 years, we could eradicate most of starvation in, in feeding the people, in programs. We could eradicate over 10 years. You know what $260 billion is over 10 years? It's like half of what the U.S. invested in, in the COVID initiative in one year. Are you getting what I'm saying? If we want to do something, we'll find a way to do it. If it's important to a nation, they will find a way. In the same, if it's important to an individual, you will find a way. But the reality is sometimes the things of God are just not that important to us. There's so many things that are more important. So we have excuses as to why we can't do what maybe we know we should do. But that wasn't the way Jesus lived. And it's not the way I should live either. We know Jesus, God, left heaven, came to earth, became a man, fully God and fully man, yet he put aside his godness to feel and experience and to be tempted in every way that we could be. And we see the climax of that sacrifice when he's on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane or the stress of that and he's praying and he knows what he's about to endure. Not only that, but the sins of the entire world. Every evil, wicked thing ever done and will ever be done put on himself. Imagine the weight of that. And he says in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. It's, it's almost unbearable. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He didn't just do what was easy, what he felt he had time for. He did what was necessary. And, and, and to be honest, there's, there's some people at Calvary, some volunteers, okay, who do a lot. They do a lot. I want to just tell you about one of them today. His name's Luke. He's at the first service. And, and Luke Larock is the chair of the deacons board. He's a man in his mid-30s in that busy life. Not only is he the chair of the deacons board, uh, but he also built the website, maintains a lot of it, free, uh, edits the sermons every week, puts them together. He burns the CDs he has been and sends, gets them out to the people who need them. On top of being married with two children, one of those children he adopted in the last two years, on top of being the director of a quite large Christian camp. Now, he could have a lot of excuses why. And, and there's so many other things he does in people's lives that I can't talk about. But he could have an excuse. He's got valid reasons. He's busy. And yet he serves. Why? Because he loves God and he loves people. And there's a great group of people that I have the honor, volunteers, that do that. But it's not just reserved for a special group. It's actually a calling for all of us. And, and so I know that not many people say thank you to Luke, but I'm saying thank you to Luke. And I hope you'll thank him when you see him. Because he does it not for a thanks, he does it for love of God and for love of people. I look at verse 11. One day he came there and he stopped at the upstairs room to lie down. This is Elijah. He ordered his attendant, Gezai, look at, look, call the Shemanite woman. So he called her and she stood before him. Then he said to Gezai, 
say to her, look, you've gone to all this trouble for us. What can we do for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I'm living among my own people. And now this is confusing. I had to read a lot of what this meant and because this can be a bit confusing because we know he's living, he's living as a relative outlaw in a land that is ruled by an evil king. So, so who is he talking about when he talks to the king? Now in that time, it was like a love-hate relationship. Evil kings hated the prophet, but sometimes they would call upon him in times of desperate need. Uh, but what, it, what commentators say he may have been talking about is that his relationship with the king of Judah, because he was a good king. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 14, the two kings come together because an invading army, Moab, the Moabites are invading the land, and so the kings come together to combine forces. And they call the prophet and they ask him, well, what's going to come of this battle? And the king of Israel hates the prophet. He speaks of that. But Elijah, when he comes, he says this, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for your presence, for the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. He's talking to the king of Israel. And so what he might have been saying to the lady is, listen, I know a king, the king of Judah, and I can pull some strings for you. Is there something I can do for you? What did the Shemanite woman do? Well, What did she say? I am a woman living among my own people. What does that mean? It means I'm just a regular person living amongst my town. I have no need for fancy courts or or big designations. I'm just satisfied where I am. And that's point three. We don't want to do something good just to get something better in return. Sometimes that's the way we make decisions. What will I do for the Lord? Well, what can it benefit me? Or I won't do that because I don't think it will benefit me. But we should do not to get in return, but we should do because it's the right thing to do. Why did Abraham Lincoln run for president? Well, if you read the life and history of him, he did it because he genuinely loved his country, he loved his God, and he loved people. And if you see him for, at the start of his first term, his four years, because he was assassinated after the start of his second term, and see him four years later, it's like he's aged 15 to 20 years. The weight of that. He wasn't doing it for the privileges to lead a nation through the Civil War. He did it because it was the right thing to do. Why did George Mueller and Mary Mueller uh, open up orphanages and take care of thousands upon thousands of children into their senior years? Not to become famous, because that wasn't something famous people did. It's because they loved God, and they loved little children, and they didn't want them to go to work camps. Why did Jim and Elizabeth Elliot go to Ecuador? Not to become famous missionaries, because he would give his life at the end of a spear. They went because they loved God and they loved people, and they wanted these people who had never heard the gospel to hear the gospel. Paul tells us in Colossians three seventeen: for whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whatever you eat or drink or do 
anything, do it for the glory of God. Why do we do what we do? Well, it should not be to get more. It should be because it's the right thing to do. But when we do, this is the amazing thing. God sees through, sees, sees to the base of our heart. Like he can see past every, all the deceptions we put up. This is the cool thing. God takes notice of the desires of our heart when we take notice of the desires of his heart. Look at verse 14. So he asked, what should be done for her? Because I answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Call Elijah. I'll call her, Elijah said. So Geziah called her, and he stood in the doorway. Elijah said, she stood in the doorway. At this time next year, you will have a son in your arms. Then he said, she said, No, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your servant. The woman conceived and gave birth to a son the same time following next year. So Elijah had promised her. Remember, this is a man whose heart is after God. He knows what the Lord wants to do. And so in consultation with God, he speaks this and it happens. Her desire had always been, she had this deep longing desire inside of her that she would be a mother to a son. That that, that was her desire. And we don't ever speak of her having sons or daughters. And, and so she had a desire for a child. And... and she maybe had given up hope that it would ever happen. Her husband was older than her, as was a custom of those days. Or, or maybe it's just something she only spoke of in her deep, silent prayers to God. You have those things in your life. I know you do. Maybe it's for a child or a family member that isn't following the Lord. Maybe it's for something, something, somebody in your life, or to be loved in a certain way, or to have something. It's a deep thing. It's something you don't discuss very often. It's something maybe you've given up hope. We all have those things. And here's the thing. She was a person who understood. And we need to understand this. She understood that you don't live faith by just off of your experiences. I'm sure she could have said, I'm not helping out the man of God. I don't have a son. I've been praying for a son for years. She didn't do that, did she? She just faithfully did what she was called to do. She believed in the God through hope, through faith and hope. And turn back to Psalm 37. This is what we hope in. Like I can't grab God. I can't call him on a telephone. But I have a hope in him. And this is what I hope. We, there was the warning in verses 1 and 2. And now there's the promise. Trust in the Lord and do what is good, and dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord, hear this, and he will give you your heart's desire. Commit your ways to the Lord and trust in him, and he will act. That goes perfectly along with what Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three. But seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Some people I meet are so focused on getting the desires of their heart that they have no time left to seek after the desires of God's heart. And what are the desires of God's heart? That everyone would know him and that we would love other people as ourselves. 
That is his desire for your lives. More than us younger people doing all our busy things, building up our little empires, and more than the seniors enjoying Freedom 55, it's these things. And now I'm not saying you have to live a life as a missionary, but what I am saying is that we have to leave our life open to what God wants to do through us. This couple shows that simple, faithful, daily living is what changes the world a little bit at a time. We don't have to be Davids and slaying giants. We don't have to be Esthers in influencing foreign kings. We can just be the you and me that God made us to be. We just have to open our eyes and look around at what needs to be done for the kingdom. Give it our best. Don't just give it our leftovers. Do it because it's the right thing to do. And then watch God do the impossible. So I want to leave you with a question before Alyssa comes and leads us in a few more songs. And this is the question. Who in your life or what in your life gets your best? And who in your life and what in your life gets your leftovers? That's the question I want to leave you with. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.